Hey, John Matalavich here from the Human Advancement Podcast. Today's guest is Nick Hare. He was a former baseball player at Pottsville, and he went on to play collegiately. Nick has a pretty interesting career in fitness. I like his perspective. He actually comes at it more from a computer science background, which I, I like a, a great deal. In the podcast, we go through a variety of topics that get more and more interesting as the conversation goes on. So if it begins a little slow for you, I would probably fast forward about a half hour into the conversation before it really begins to pick up. But there's a lot covered even in the beginning. We cover tech and data and using it to track the progress of athletes across time. Some of the most interesting stuff that we covered was his Nick's grip training strategies that he uses uh, with Colin at AFC. There's a lot going on in this podcast, and there's definitely a lot to learn. So let's get into our podcast with Nick Hare. Hey, this is John Matalavich from the Human Advancement Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a personal trainer, another uh, another local from Schuylkill County. Um, it's unfortunate we're going to see him leaving in the next few weeks, maybe next few months, as he, he heads out to basic training for the Marines. But he's a pretty scientific approach to to his personal training practice, and and I'm happy to have him as a resource in the area while while we still do. Um, and I, I know you you had gone through high school at Pottsville area around the same time as I did. I was just wondering if you could at first just kind of take us through your high school athletic career and, and kind of what led you into the whole personal training domain. And I know you had a bit of a, uh, of a non, uh, you had a bit of a non-traditional introduction into the field of strength and conditioning. You didn't go through in exercise science in college. You went through with a degree in um, computer science. So maybe you could speak to that as well. Sure. Yeah. So in uh, high school, I, uh, going, going through, I was a freshman wrestler. Uh, I got into soccer my sophomore year and I played uh, baseball four years. Um, from a standpoint, I just always was into uh, competition, but for a physical standpoint for training with wrestling, it was still a lot of body weight stuff. And then just a lot of the physicality was in the sport itself, but I was real big. I did a ton of push-ups, uh, sit-ups, uh, pull-ups, everything like that. So I really enjoyed doing that stuff. But um, my sophomore year was the first year I really got into lifting. One of the seniors on the team that year, uh, AJ Hubiak, another alumni, got me into the weight room, told me, you know, just some basic stuff, just general stuff. He said, hey, it's like, if you're going to be here, if you're committed to the baseball team is what I ended up playing as my primary sport in college eventually. He said, you know, you got to come in here. You got to get stuff done. So I appreciated him pulling the reins in on me and giving me the opportunity to come with him and show me some stuff in the gym. And I mean, day one, I mean, I was like, I don't even know. It was like 75 pounds on the squat bar or something like that. And even from that moment, I was like, yep, this is the stuff I enjoy the most. I never wanted to miss a day in the gym. So, I mean, it started young. And even then I was only lifting maybe three days a week, but I was, I looked forward to it every time, every week, you know, going in. And then eventually, I mean, I was pretty light. So I kind of got interested in lifting because I mean, I wrestled, I was, in, I was like 115 in, you know, freshman year, sophomore year. And I only graduated high school about 140. So, I mean, I was very light and I figured any more pounds and strength I could get was going to give me an edge going into college. And if I had a background in lifting, it was going to give me an edge, which it actually came to fruition that I was in the weight room anyways. I had a lot of edge on kids that never even were touched a weight before going into the uh, college baseball. 
but yeah, and then um, from a computer science standpoint, I grew up. Um, I was a big. Uh, I I, did, I moved a lot with my family, so I uh, I played a lot of I, a lot of video games to keep me up to date. My a lot of my uh, uh, relatives, uh, my uncle especially, growing up, uh, we were pretty close. He had a lot of video games. kept uh, kept me and the cousins busy playing those, and so I got really into computer stuff and the video game stuff. And then so growing through high school, I got more into the programming side of things, and I really enjoyed. Um, that computer science stuff. So I said, I figured might as well make um, a career out of it, you know, having to make a decision that young. Obviously, we'd all, if we had a more opportunity later in life to change that, I probably would, would have done something exercise science related or physical therapy, something like that. But I think, you know, I think 99% of the people in either of those fields would say the exact opposite thing. All the exercise science kids say, why the hell didn't I do computer science? <laughs> yeah. It's just one of those things I grew up with it a lot. I mean, I didn't have a lot other than that technology stuff to keep me busy when I was younger. So it just made sense. I was like, I enjoy the video game stuff. Not in a sense that I played, I wouldn't say I was one of the crazier I played too much video games. I just enjoyed the idea that there was a way to express yourself to make something like that. And then I got into computers because it was just uh, at that time. I mean, even now, technology just changes so fast and it's uh, just always progressing. So it was very interesting. So I decided to continue the education there. And then um, at this point, I'm in that limbo where I started to do more strength and conditioning because that's my biggest interest. That's most of my, I guess, what we'd say hobby or interest of stuff is outside of the education side was I got into powerlifting, got into old school bodybuilding stuff, you know, Arnold, Arnold's encyclopedia, encyclopedia of uh, weightlifting, all that stuff. I got into all that stuff. And the rest is just kind of history. Now I kind of have my biggest focus in my life around the fitness things with whether it be clients or looking to get new people, teach people what I wish I knew. I kind of just fell in from there after the baseball career ended in college. It just fell right into my lap to keep trying to coach kids or coach whoever would is interested in getting better or the new stuff I've been researching, anything like that to try to give them an edge that I wish I would have had or knew growing up. Even so, I don't think you're at that much of a competitive disadvantage in, in the field of strength and conditioning and the field of exercise science. I mean, even from the, the few trips that I did up to Cressy Performance or the, the very short time I spent as an intern there, I mean, there was, that was an eclectic group of human beings. I mean, even in my intern class, there was a, a cook and maybe one person of six was going through in an actual exercise science program. I mean, people were in it from all over the place. They, they, more than anything, it's just that enthusiasm for coaching and everything else kind of just follows suit shortly thereafter. But I, I think in, in, even in the collegiate context, if you break down the actual curriculum, you're, the volume of, of exercise science intensive courses you take is, is very marginal. I mean, maybe a totality of, somewhere between a half a dozen and a dozen classes and you know maybe even half of that are applicable to anything that one might want to do and then of the classes that are ap applicable you're looking at um, academic research that's probably you know 10 20 30 40 years old like the, it's all predicated on just a bunch of old school nonsense not to say there's anything wrong with the old school but i just think it's not a field that easily lends itself to the academic setting Oh, for sure. yeah. You see in, in a case where there's so many variables when you're training a, a sports team. I mean, if you look at uh, who a lot of these populations are that they're doing these exercise science tests on in a collegiate academic setting, it's, you know, it's just kids that either need the money to, that they get from being study participants 
or whatever the case might be, but they're not necessarily the best athletes in the world. And I think there's a huge dichotomy between what the biological research says about people that are actually inclined for athletics versus general population. I mean, just the entire systems in the body work almost in opposition to, to in between those two populations. No, for sure. I mean, like, uh, there's like, even, I mean, I think most of us that went through college or a setting like that has this feeling like even from a computer science standpoint, I know this is off uh, kilter with uh, the sports stuff, but I felt like I, with, I, if I didn't go to college, these, the, those four years, I didn't learn anything that I took away that I haven't researched on my own on just, you know, Google or other resources that makes me better at computer science things. I've done way more programming with alternative resources than my college education that, I feel is the same kind of boat with the strength and conditioning stuff. I feel like I went through the NASM, the National Academy of Sports Medicine certificate. I don't use any, basically anything from there. Most of the stuff I learn is, I mean, use is newer things in a sense. I wouldn't say new, I shouldn't say newer in the sense of like maybe newer research, but like newer in the sense that we understand things possibly with new um, modalities that make more sense than the kind of standardized way that they think and things like that. But it's just, it's just crazy to think that a lot of us went through that kind of process and have that feeling where we um, went through and we try to get a degree in exercise science per se, and then marginally learned that over the four years. And it felt we had to do outsource somewhere else to get that information. Well, and that's plain and simple. If you're going through college and you're just relying entire exclusively on the curricula of the program, you're, you're either lazy or you're going to be woefully unprepared when you hit the real world because that's just it's not I mean even within the context of exercise science there's you know a multitude of subdomains you're probably looking at two or three or four dozen professions that you could get out of that and and the context just isn't there exclusively within the program I mean the best thing the only thing what the whole program tends to be predicated around is the is the internship so they're just preparing you I guess it's just an aptitude thing to to show that you you're you're capable of preparing yourself to manage some some outside source. But I I think you know for a lot of people, the only real benefit is just that buy in that that buy in from athletes or from parents or whatever that say that this person's college educated in this thing. But yeah, I think sure you yeah. can almost achieve the same thing like kind of like what you did just with getting the. Um, the certifications you could just knock off you know a sixty thousand dollar education just getting the certification the problem being with some of them like probably the one you were in with the acsm or the nsca is some of the higher end certifications require a bachelor's degree i was just gonna say yeah i think i'm pretty sure nasm requires at least a it's like associates or bachelor's degree so it's kind of one of those strange things that's like kind of like even in, I think for most, most things, it's like kind of why, why do we have to do that? Because I mean, nothing that I learned in my bachelor's degree relatively made sense to anything for what I learned at NASM. <laughs> so I don't, I never, I don't really understand that myself. And then an anecdotal thing, an anecdotal thing for myself, for computer science, like you said, if you're just learning the stuff in the curriculum, you're going to have a hard time in the real world. My senior year, I went to a thing called a hackathon, which is basically, and I don't mean this negatively at all was this a giant nerd convention in new jersey and i mean some smart kids like fresh freshmen sophomores in college and i was a senior and i felt like i was a like a world behind these kids and i was already three years into my degree almost four done out my bachelor's and i felt not nearly as prepared as these kids that were coming in that were just freshmen it's one of those things where if you don't keep up to date with the new stuff on yourself you're going to fall behind just i completely agree with that for for sure and I, I actually heard also actually from another podcast guest, uh, Colin Federisca, 
who's he's a CSCS certified uh, personal trainer. He said that CSCS is actually um, moving forward with the, it looks like they're actually going to make it a little bit more restrictive getting into the into the CSCS where it's actually going to be, I don't know, some kind of hard science oriented degree that you'll need to go through before you could even qualify for taking the test itself. I think eventually that kind of has to what makes sense because I mean, the NAS, I'm not I'm not talking bad about the National Academy of Sports Medicine, NASM, but like my, the studying I did, all I had to do was just memorize some stuff that I don't really find particularly interesting or, or noteworthy that I would use with my clients, but it was just expected of me for the test. I didn't require that much energy. I spent not too, as much time, like they give you a really long time to study. I can't think of it. I was just trying to think how many weeks off the top of my head, but it's like up to six months or something like that to study. I didn't, you didn't, you don't need hardly any of that time. I just spent maybe a week or two just going over the questions and I was able to pass, you know, pretty easily, which I think says a lot because then you get, some people get that certificate and start trying to inform people of things. And maybe that is putting people at risk, you know, that aren't ready, like someone that doesn't have the capacity to do the work that that trainer provides, that's less educated or anything like that, that doesn't take the time to assess or things like that as appropriately as need be. Like, I guess there needs to be some kind of cutoff, which is what they're looking for, is that they need to have, you know, some kind of standard. But, and I do think that, I think the exercise science probably shouldn't necessarily be a, exercise science should not be a bachelor's program. If anything, it should be available at like the master's of science level or the doctorate level. I, I think at this level, it should just be a subdomain of biology or some kind of allied health in general. I think more time spent just in in the hard sciences would be would make a lot more sense. I mean, that's where that's where a lot of these studies make sense. That's where science makes sense at that point. There's just too many confounding factors in something like nutrition or in something like strength and conditioning. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's how I feel like, I mean, now that I'm out of school, I mean, the more research I do from, if I learn a system or certificate, it's kind of, okay, what biology do I need to better understand? What neurology or what fill in the blank do I better need to understand? It's not like, okay, I need to now know, you know, nonlinear periodization or periodization, you know, I don't, it's not, it doesn't come down to that. It comes into the more science side of things. Okay. What about this human being in front of me? Do I need to know beforehand to make sure I'm putting them in the best position to succeed at whatever they're asking me they want to prepare for or whatever it may be. It's interesting that you said about, you know, what, what system you'd kind of like to understand better. And I, I kind of went through a bit of a bit of a transition, a bit of an evolution in my own understanding of, of human physiology, where at first, when you're kind of going through the exercise science curricula in college, you think the whole program is, is predicated on the musculoskeletal system. It's all just muscles and their interplay with the skeleton. Um, and how it creates movement. And then, you know, over time, that slowly transitioned for me into recognizing on my own the value of the neuromuscular system and the input of the central nervous system onto, uh, as it, as, and its interplay with the muscles. Um, and now more and more, I'm getting even further away from that. And I'm starting to think more and more about um, the relationship between the digestive system, specifically the gut, and the nervous system. I mean, this is so far outside of the domain of what I'm doing, but this is just has been my almost evolution of thinking about what I'm thinking about the most in terms of human performance. Have you had a, a similar experience? Is that something you you recognized at all? So for me, it's just anecdotal anecdotal experience. So I don't know if this is going to be any use to someone, but for myself. So luckily, in my experience with food itself, um, I have pretty lenient um, standards to what I 
what I eat per se. Like I eat healthy. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I eat healthy, but like I, I have the lactide enzyme. I can eat as, I can drink as much milk or lactose like that. And it doesn't affect me. I'm not allergic to gluten. I'm not like allergic to any real food. So I kind of have the opportunity to mix and match things that particularly might cause inflammation in my body that, um, that doesn't happen to me that could happen to someone else. But I do believe that since inflammation affects people in certain ways, like if it's chronically or if someone's done um, a lifting session and they eat certain foods that cause even more inflammation, how that affects the recovery process or affects how well they can, you know, put on muscle if they want muscle, how well they can perform or anything like that, how well it's their sleeping, things like that. It definitely, I think, comes into a factor for the gut. That's more out of my realm of things, for sure. I, I, I don't speak to it as, I mean, I should know more about it, I'm sure, but I just not enough to other than my anecdotal experience that for sure, if I, if I go, you know, a week, you know, I'm prepping for a powerlifting competition and I'm eating, you know, pretty strict. I'm not going to go off the course here. My performance is so much better. It's just certainly there's something that's to say if I maintain a strict diet of things um, that I perform better. It's just, that's just in my experience, that's just true every single time. And then, you know, off season comes or in, you know, the pandemic right now, you're kind of eating this and that and maybe, you know, sacrificing some healthier food options for other things. And for sure, I'm staying up later. My sleep feels compromised. My lifts aren't, haven't been as good in the last eight weeks. There's definitely something to be said that there is a, you know, even an emotional, you know, physical, like the connection that there are a whole entire stress system itself. I think there's definitely a connection somehow between what we eat, the inflammation it causes, and then the inflammation of outside stressors definitely plays a role in sleep, the performance, everything like that. There's definitely something to be said there. Even from, from the, still from the perspective of strength and conditioning, you know, I, you know, what, with what I do, it's, it's just about human performance with, with, with the company Ruthless Performance. I mean, but ultimately it seems as though the best efferent and afferent way that we can cause any kind of changes in the human system is through strength and conditioning. I mean, there's just so many tools at our disposal. So even, even from an inflammation reduction standpoint, there's so much at our disposal within strength and conditioning. And I think people think of it as so much more of a, a limited modality where they're just thinking in terms of, you know, getting a, a few more pounds on the bench and then maybe it helping it helping them on the football field because you're putting a couple pounds on or whatever. I don't think people recognize the full, the full breadth and scope of, of what you can achieve in the weight room. Oh, sure. I mean, even in, and again, another personal experience, like, I mean, the, the more I wish I knew about specificity, progressive adaptation principles, when I was training baseball in college, like if for some reason in my head, because I was good at weightlifting, I was very good at squatting and deadlifting. For some reason, I was like, if I could squat 400 pounds and deadlift 500 pounds, I'll get drafted for, you know, for baseball that makes zero sense. Really. Like it doesn't really matter. Like there's plenty of people that don't do that much weight in uh, those respective lifts that are better baseball players than I was. It's one of those things where like, at what point are you just becoming better at those lifts from a strength and condi uh, conditioning standpoint, instead of specifically towards those things, the strength and conditioning is just a tool to get you to that, the, the specificity you want. So, I mean, it's just crazy to see like there's, you know, the, the end cases like Bo Jackson, that, you know, never lifted and had that genetic potential to, you know, someone like me that graduated at college 140 and I grew, I, I started high school one, you know, 15 and now I walk around 175. Like that's strictly because I found lifting weights to give me a better genetic potential relative to other people. So again, there's, there's no one recipe, but there's definitely, there's definitely a misconception of, you know, if I get 225 bench, maybe that'll make me better athlete for whatever that reason may be. I think it, I think it's probably true that it will make you a better athlete, but 
only to the extent that you're not using it as a testing means. So I think if I will usually pick a, the athlete that has the 500 pound deadlift as the winner as opposed to the one that doesn't, but not if it's just because they're coming to the gym five times a week and just doing some 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 crazy split just to specifically jack up their deadlift or their you yeah, know that's... straps or whatever. So I think it probably a lot of these a lot of these modalities work. It's just the extent to which we're using some of these testing protocols is might might be where there's a breakdown. Like again, just going back to just my my continuing to bitch about college is even in the in the class in the class we had where we were it was basically a, a class to help you tr educate you to take um, it was either AS ACSM strength special whatever the hell yeah i'm not sure what that one is either <laughs> one of the ones it but i think it's asc acsm one of their tests um uh, we were still going through the program doing one rms like what athlete are you why are we one rm testing athletes i see so little value in that i and you know and then and then not only are you one rm testing them but you're taking a day away from their training to do this one rm testing I think maybe if they really wanted to, but it, I don't think it's a predictable, I, I don't think it's a predictor of, of anything whatsoever. Yeah, no, because even, I mean, I have a powerlifting background. That's what I got interested in first. And to me, like, there comes a point where you just become specific to those lifts. Like now that I uh, started picking up jujitsu and things, you come to realize if you start to hone in on these one rep maxes and you're building, you're specifically trying to progressively adapt your body to be better at squatting or better at deadlifting, you become a flexion extension, a sagittal plane warrior. Like your body specificity becomes narrow. You don't get the rotational range of motion that you, or the capacity that you would like for the things that make sense for sport other than squatting and deadlifting. So I, there comes a fine line between, am I in the gym squatting and deadlifting because that's going to make me a better baseball player? And at what point am I in the weight room when I squat and deadlift and now I'm just being better at squatting and deadlifting? And I think, again, the one rep max, other than for someone that's powerlifting, because that's their sport, definitely there's, there's comes the question, what's the, what's the point? And I also agree. Because even I'm, in my training now, I'm getting more into capacity building with isometrics. And I, I say the question where at some point, because the deadlift is an arbitrary height off the floor with the plates and people's leverages and morphology for squatting for someone that is super tall relative to me, who's only 5'7", at what point is full range of motion almost compromising to their sport if it's not necessary? Like I, I there's a few pitchers um, that I've worked with that, you know, you know, six, seven, at what point is squatting ass the grass as a six, seven pitcher, putting them more at risk for stuff that is unnecessary relative to just making them better at pitching. So it's like, yeah, I, here's, the what I was, here's the dichotomy between the weight room and then just getting better at sport. That makes sense. When I was training uh, college basketball players, it was kind of the same situation where uh, squats, you know, usually you would think with, with a population like that that's prone to ACL injuries, you would avoid, um, you would avoid something like front squats, but just, just for the sake of, with their leverages, a back squat almost ended up looking like a good morning. So it was like we- Exactly. Because even here's a good, a good example. When I was in college, and this is what started my hunt for more uh, principal understanding of lifting, was we got a program that said four by 10 and I was in a group with someone that was like six. So in college, I was like, you know, I'm five, seven, 155 pounds in college. And I was grouped with someone that was, you know, six, four, 250 pounds. 
So why is he doing four sets of 10 and I'm doing four sets of 10? Cause it's just one of those things where is, am I not doing enough maybe, or is he doing too much? Are those numbers right for both of us because of the work he has to put in from his height to my height, the leverages we have, who's doing more work. Like, you know, it's just one of those questions where there's definitely more to it than it seems. It's not a simple, you know, this like in the good word that you use is the dichotomy of things. So, I mean, there's, that comes into play every, every uh, exercise selection that you use, definitely that dichotomy comes in, whether is it, at what point am I making them better at the lift I ask them to do relative to their sport specifically? I, I know I, I kind of came across as a little harsh towards some of the, some of the certifying bodies just now, and even some of the college programs, but I think what they're trying to maximize for is uh, a coach's ability to kind of oversee a weight room full of athletes that are in the same sport at the same time. So I guess that's, that's kind of the defense of the traditional strength and conditioning, strength and conditioning model is that you have a, a room full of people and you have a limited number of resources and time to allocate to kind of individualizing the training. But oh, sure. when, yeah. fortunately, when, Oops, when you're in like a private strength and conditioning model, you or a private training model, you can kind of, the value is that you can make programs a little bit more um, to, to the specifications of the individual. And I think even to an extent, you can do that in a, a large group setting as well. It's just that it just requires a little bit more strategy than we're currently seeing. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Cause not to take away from a coach that's doing that. Cause it's difficult. I mean, at misericordia, I mean, we had like 50 guys on our team, you try to individualize 50 guys in the weight room at one time. It's a difficult thing to do. That's why we get broken up into groups. We, you know, if we had, you know, 12 squat racks divided by four. I mean, that's going to put the team right where you need. And then four by 10, that's about the right time before you switch to a new exercise. It makes perfect sense. It's just one of those things where the bigs, the question that I would finish the four sets and be like, well, maybe I should do one or two more. I don't feel too banged up. I feel like I have more in the tank for what I was asked of me. And then I look over and then my, you know, six, four counterparts dying after set two. That's, that's why I agree where in the, in the privatized side or the personal side, it's a lot easier to make those differences with someone for sure. So what is the, so obviously you, you train personally as a power lifter. Um, and I do to an extent as well. I just, I do that just because it's, it's an easy way for me to see the metrics. I could kind of auto-regulate my training on a daily basis and, and day after day, month after month, I can just kind of see the progression even without doing strict one RM testing. Like I'll do, um, you know, I'll do two max effort days a week, just pretty traditional West side conjugate style. But when you were training an athlete, what, what kind of rep range are you going into at the lowest and, and at the highest for that matter? And what are your considerations when, when doing so? Sure. So, uh, um, if the event comes to, so in my settings has been, if I've had younger kids, which would be the better opportunity to do a powerlifting style. Um, fortunately I've had those in class settings, so I haven't had that individual approach. And then most of my clients at my other gym are older that aren't using powerlifting. But this is how I consider someone coming to me is um, for the rep range style, for, the, the, for what I've seen from the systems I've used and what's working for the people in the powerlifting community that I see. Um, just a bunch of random names I want to say, but like Sean, Sean Norega, or if that's, I, I, hopefully that's how you pronounce his last name, uh, Russ Swole, Instagram handle, another good uh, 83 kilo guy. A lot of these high-level powerlifters, they do um, mesocycles where they have these high-volume days um, away from a cycle, like a hypertrophy style, maybe like 10 reps. So typically, I like to do, in my scheme, if I were to take this approach into my own hands, was I like to do a four-week, a four-week, um, 
mesocycle 12 week or a 12 week mesocycle with four uh microcycles of of events of you know where we'll have hypertrophy strength and then a peak into you know that after the 12 week and then restart the process kind and hopefully improve the numbers so i mean you're looking at maybe the three weeks before the deload of the first hypertrophy cycle where i'm hoping to do eight to twelve so finding that 10 that's typically what i've seen for most of the uh the like um and this comes back to like you said with the research and stuff like it's tough to take this research unless we get a group of 100 power lifters that are on top of the game because if i just take a random study of people that are you know an average person they're not going to understand how someone's squatting 500 for 10 at 180 pounds like that's not going to make sense <laughs> so it's one of those things where i have to kind of extrapolate maybe there's no sound testing and one of my favorite quotes from tom tom platz that's uh, i've seen regurgitated from julian smith another uh, instagram uh, body is that a little more science i mean a little less science a little more doing it's kind of one of those things where i have to take what i see in some instances where the science doesn't really back someone that squats 500 for 10 but anyways the hypertrophy for the three the first three uh weeks the first part of the cycle probably looking eight to ten eight to twelve and i need to find a certain amount of squat bench and deadlift numbers that's not going to kill them in that in that week so that's going to be individual a little bit of testing and then uh, strength is going to be the same for me i like four to six that's always been worked well for me seems to be um uh, a reference that a lot of the guys i follow use that are at the top of the game and then the peak, the peak style, uh, one to three, you know, if we're, if we're three weeks, four weeks out, maybe that's the three reps near max, you know, in the nineties, 90% range, and then slowly peaking into that last week before competition for a peak or seven to 14 days, you know, one rep right near that max, hopefully to peak yourself into a new PR for that meet day, something like that is kind of how I approach. And that's from the juggernaut training systems. That's kind of how they approach a three, one style. And, um, I know it's a little bit of a rant with a bunch of people coming in, but I really enjoy the concept of a hard week to a harder week to a hardest week and then a deload and then try to improve on that, those numbers, the following cycle until plateau. And then obviously where you say regulation things, then maybe the next cycle we focus more, we drop the weight a little bit to try to change the uh, force velocity curve, maybe a little more velo stuff to improve that model so that when we do a strength cycle again, We've already pushed the curve over and then we can try to build that absolute strength again. Yeah. I, if I, if I could, I, I'd just like to say that I do, what we do is, is similar except the D load we actually put at the beginning of the cycle, oddly enough. So, Oh yeah, I um, guess it's the same. It's, you know, it's, it's just like three, one. So you could just do one, three and it would still be exactly the same. Well, the one, so for us, the way we do it is we just, we use the first week almost as like a, just a neurological adaptation week. So as opposed to it just being more, as opposed to it being a strain on the central nervous system, it's more motor learning that first week. They're doing one to two, you know, one to two sets, whatever exercise with, you know, 50 to 60% of the weight. So, and then, then it just builds through week four. And then then it starts again with a week one, but the week one is all just brand, brand new exercises, but it's a new exercise that they'll be doing for the subsequent weeks. So although it's on one hand, it's a deload from the, the, the relative intensity that they've been dealing with, they're also at the same time able to, to learn some new exercises. And that, that seems to work well for most of our high school and college kids that, that, that we're training with. The other thing I wanted to touch on quick was just kind of what you said, that, that, that quote about, you know, um, science and doing, you know, I, I'm, I'm 100% on the side of science. I just think that I'm skeptical of academics and their interpretation of the science. I think the scientific method is great, but I just think there's too many variables at any given point to just 
be able to reduce what's going on in the real world to something that's that's understandable. And the moment that we can better test these things and there's more qualifiers, I think we'll we'll be much better suited to kind of merge the the, the academic sphere of exercise science and the actual athlete development side of it but i don't i don't think it's an actual problem with the science i just think it's a problem with the with the methodology no sure yeah and i don't want to like discredit like all of my all if you look at all of my training it's based upon science for sure like i'm not discrediting science but there comes a point especially with powerlifting i found and um some other niche stuff like a, my colleague colin mcgee has uh, been doing a ton of grip work stuff I mean, that's science to a T. The guy we follow is uh, Camp for Human Performance. C4HP is his uh, Instagram handle. I mean, I've taken a few of his courses over this quarantine. I mean, everything's backed by, you know, research that we do. It's nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, it's just basic principles just applied in a way that makes sense and it's digestible and easy to apply to a client. And I mean, there just comes a point in powerlifting I found that like the research is just not indicative of what there's just human beings out there that just aren't in the, the research as well as like, I think it uh, needs to be, you know, especially when you see there's plenty, there's just such a huge um, pool now of, of people that are just demolishing strength records from the past that it's just hard to say um, other than just kind of taking their almost, it's not that it's anecdotal evidence, but like there's a principal manner of specificity, progressive adaptation. And then I have to apply that, to the client I have in front of me and it's going to be higher weights than is, you know, expressed. Well, I, I just, just look at the conclusions, look at the conclusions from a lot of these studies. I mean, so you, you take a general population guy, someone who's never been strength trained before and you extrapolate, ex extrapolate the results that of, of their training program on their increases to their, their relative strength or their one RM or whatever the hell the case might be. And you see for, you know, a four to eight week strength mesocycle and they're getting 38 or 40% jumps increases in one rep, one rep max strength. And then, you, you know, you try to apply that to someone who's been doing this for five or six or 10 years. And you wonder why they're, you know, they're maybe getting one pound out of it. If for that, it just, for sure. I mean, there's literally people out there that are Olympic training in hopes to gain maybe five kilos over a four year cycle. Like, I mean, that's, that's the study that I need in front of me. Someone that has a training age that's that high, that is, you know, training these intense two a day, you know, cycles over the course of four years in hopes to maybe get five kilos on the clean and jerk over yeah. literally four years. Like that's, that's, that's the study that it's tough to say from the evidence that I see that I need to kind of almost ex do my own extrapolation from the people that are doing the acts themselves. I kind of have to take real world time stuff and, you know, try to try to put that in the training because that's what, that's what you see more is you're going to see these people that are in hopes to gain these fractional um, percentages over really, really long periods of time. And I don't think a lot of people understand that once it gets the training age gets up. I, well, I think that's something we have in common is almost that um, as opposed to enjoy, we like training athletes more than general population people, because with the general population people, I mean, there's, there's a pretty clear, a pretty evident path as to how you're going to get fat loss. And it's, it's uh, on compared to what, you know, what some magazine articles might have you think it's really not that complicated of, of, a, of a strategy getting from, you know, 30% body fat to 25. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Um, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's definitely straightforward as opposed to something like what, you know, what we're doing. I think we have 
a little bit more creative control and we're we're a little bit more on the forefront of figuring out what the variables are and kind of doing our own scientific testing and i think that's that's the best thing that we can do for sure yeah and then like even like you said for having someone general population like a lot of times like they're just their needs are so much different that it's one of those things where like you said where I think the hardest part is keeping them motive, like I, I, the word motivation in a sense, but like keep them motivated to come back and you got to keep the exercises fresh so they don't burn out and things. Because I think the most progress comes from, you know, I keep my programming very simple to the point of almost, I hate to say boredom too, but like my exercises, like I don't do much crazy. I don't do very many crazy things. Like mm-hmm. it's not that exciting of a workout, but I know that if you if trust the process, we adjust the numbers, we follow, you know, how, I follow my volume um, that it works. It just one of those things where you kind of just got to grind through. And I don't, and for me, since I enjoyed so much, I don't think of it as grind, but I mean, squatting every Monday and Friday for, you know, years at a time doing exactly the same rep scheme, but just adding weight over years is definitely could be, you know, pretty mundane and tedious to a lot of the population, especially general population who really at most don't really care about anything we say. They just want to lose fat or they want to, you know, you know, look better for the beach one time a year or something like that. It's just one of those things where it's just so different. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something where it, it becomes less about the science and more about the motivation, like you said. And one thing I've said before, I'm almost notorious for saying it because I say it so much, is I, I'm not a motivator. If, you know, if you are coming, I, I rarely seek out fat loss clients because uh, in a lot of times they've gotten into that situation just because of a variety of lifestyle decisions. And to work against all that is actually an unmanageable amount of stress on me to just try to unravel all that. Whereas I'd rather be, you know, part of this positive feedback loop of someone that's already looking to get better, it's already in good shape, and is just looking to take it to the next level. That's something I could that I could work with a lot easier than than even even though the path isn't as evident, it's something that I have a lot more success with than just trying to trying to keep people focused and keep people energized because I've if you're not motivated, I'm not going to be motivated to make you better. So I, I can't be the one, I can't be the one to inflict that motivation upon you. It just, it's, it's a very unlikely course of events. Sure. I, and then for like, for me, I feel I, I, I haven't, fortunately so far, I don't have too much of the, the fat loss situation uh, that, that client, but I definitely have seen plenty uh, so far, but it's one of those things where for me, like I've never had someone have to tell me to go lift or anything like that. So I know if like I had a coach and they gave me something like they don't have, there's no question I'm going to get it done. But I mean, I have like, I always joke with my, uh, my brother is very, uh, my brother's graduating through uh, Pottsville as well. He's very athletic, but he just absolutely hated doing anything like for in the weight room, like despised, like didn't want to go. Is he tall? He's, he's like, uh, he's like two inches taller than me. He's like five, nine. He's a skinny kid. So like could, could afford to put on some more weight, you know, and he was fairly athletic. So, I mean, if he had just, you know, a little bit of a drive to work on some stuff, maybe he would have saw a greater athletic outcome into the college level. But it was one of those things where, I mean, he didn't want to do it. So, I mean, you know, I had people tell me, well, why don't you get on him to go? I was like, I can tell him to go. He's, but as soon as I'm not there, he's not going to do it. So it's one of those, I completely agree. It's, it's a very tough, tough thing to try to get someone that uh, is not have that drive or the, the self-discipline, I guess, to continue those daily habits to. It's worse with family though, because you could be, you could be, you could be out there training Olympic medalists every day and, and your family's still just going to think of you as just the guy at the dinner table. That's a tough thing to be. 
that too, for sure. I mean, most of the time, I mean, cause I've kind of, you're just, I don't know if this happens to you, but I'm just associated with fitness whenever we have family gatherings. So it's one of, it's almost an inevitable talking point, but at most point I kind of just nod my, if they say anything at all, even if it's completely wrong, I just nod my head and say, yeah, <laughs> just to complete, just to get, just to get past that. Cause it, you know, it's just, once those people have those thoughts and it's not something they're willing to change, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's just an uphill battle that I don't really, especially at a family gathering when I don't want to I deal with that at all. I'm not trying to, not trying to fix. <laughs> One of the things in the, in the training family situation that I've come across is um, I don't, people don't realize the, the, the strain and, and this, the, what it takes to kind of put together a cohesive program over a period of time. So occasionally um, it's becoming less and less frequent now because I kind of make examples out of them, but I, I ref, like I'm, I, refuse to do a, a free program for someone in, even immediately in the family, in the immediate family. I just, because uh, unless they have that buy-in of the actual exchange of, of, of money, it, they, that in and it of itself is of value to them as a client is that they have committed value to the process of betterment as opposed to just this one-sided, here's this program, let's go, let's go do it kind of thing. For sure. Yeah. I mean, even in this, in the area, since it's more of like a cheaper cost of living, I'm certified in functional range systems that has like a, a class option called kin stretch, which I almost hate to teach because not in the sense that it's a bad class by any means. I love the, what it does to kids. And then they come up and say they, their hips feel better, everything like that. But I get, I get associated with um, becoming the stretching guy. And even though all the principles of the class are strength training, it's max effort, strength work, things like that. But my point is, is I, in some, in other areas, people are, you know, getting um, a decent amount per person per class. And I kind of devalued it up front, which is my mistake as a business, you know, opportunity. And that's my mistake going forward to learn from. But like I, the, the value, you, like you said, that's so huge. I mean, there was a point where I was charging too cheap where people didn't take it seriously and weren't coming. And now you have to find that niche where people are going to pay and take it seriously and provide that value. Cause we've all given free programs and I'm trying to get like, I don't really give free programs myself anymore even the family members or close friends there's only one or two that i keep up to date with because they're just you know someone that i know is doing the work and i see them and we do other events together but like you're right you almost get like an emotional attachment to the programming in a sense because you want them to succeed and you know if they put in the work it almost comes back to you it like hurts you a little bit that they didn't put that work in from that program itself and then you know the devaluing of service and things like that it's all that niche that you, or the dichotomy like you said uh to find where that brings values the right cost and gets the person to do it that's something that needs to get thrown into the college uh strength and conditioning or college exercise science programs is the whole class on pricing structure oh i yeah i totally agree i mean i obviously i didn't have that in computer science but i mean i i uh now i'm at a point where i'm doing i think i'm in a right realm and if i get enough clients it's plenty of money for me to do other ventures for the time that i have to put forth but if there's still a few stuff that I do that like I almost hate to go, even though it's like enough that it's not, it's like enough. And I, I give back enough to kids that I f it makes me feel good enough to keep doing. But yeah, I like, you know, I should have charged more, just a little bit more. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be greedy about it, but I, it's just, I devalued it enough that I feel like it's, it doesn't give, you know, credit to the system or credit to what I do because I charge a certain amount. I feel like, you know, that comes into your mind all the time where it's like, is this the right price? And I definitely, for a few things, starting off as, you know, a uh, unexperienced, you know, trainer, definitely devalued some of my stuff for sure. 
I, I think you need to uh, off the bat. I think going through high school, even if you know at that early of an age and going through college that you should be taking almost every undergoing almost every free opportunity that you can get your hands on, even if people are going to ignore the programs. But, you know, once it comes once it comes time to make a living, I mean, you got you can't it's 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 buy in time. It's it's on them at that point. But one of the things I did, so I actually I don't even I'm not even um, an exercise science graduate. I went through so the first three and a half, four years of the program, I was an exercise science program. But then what I did is I switched so it was interdisciplinary, so that I was in a sense, I was I was basically building a public health administration program. So the exercise science curriculum up to the three hundred level classes completely out of the way. But then I recognized, you know, any of these opportunities, kind of like you did, any of these opportunities that I could have in the field, I could have with a degree in almost anything else. So that's when I started taking, um, I started taking um, the business classes and I started oh, taking nice, the political yeah. science classes just to kind of give me that, um, that added advantage just where I to just pursue some kind of workforce endeavor as opposed to that exercise science model that's so limited. You know, me learning... A, a 100 or a 200 level business class was so much more advantageous to me as a business owner and just as a person in general, as opposed to taking a class on reading uh, an EKG machine. You know, I, in a private setting, I'm never going to see that. And, and then at that point, even if I was going to, it would just be, it's just a race to the top of affording better and better equipment. And, and that's just not, that's not a race I'm, I'm willing to, uh, to jump into yeah and that's one of those things like the cost benefit of it i mean for me like even because i i've been trying to uh refresh myself i've been taking a few courses on like structures uh anatomical physiology like uh concepts names and things because i got lax with it because i was having clients that i would say okay we're doing this and that we're working this and that and then they don't care you know most of the time they don't care so it's one of those things where I, w I should have invested my time differently, definitely to the business side of things instead of I spent so much time trying to maximize my understanding of certain things where if I put more time into the business side, maybe I wouldn't have made these mistakes off the bat. I'm not saying those are bad things because even now I'm refreshing myself now because I, I, I went to the wayside of learning those things and to try to get my business side up. But it's one of those things where definitely that business for sure helps. And for me, mine was through um, Robert T. Kiyosaki, uh, Grant Cardone, Gary V and a few just other self-help books like the atomic, even though it's not, they're not business books per se, but like the uh, books about habits, like atomic habits, the power of habit, nudge, just concepts that I could use um, from a personal standing standpoint that I can be more businessy as a, as a person, just understand the concept of, you know, how to value my service. Um, but again, as Grant Cardone likes to say, action, you got I mean, in Gary V there's more action than there comes a point where I was just reading self-help books because I was procrastinating the action. Part. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, I read them not necessarily because I think that they're going to help me all that much. I just read them in place of me doing stupid shit. So I'll read these books as opposed to just me drinking or yeah. you know, whatever else the case might be. So it's, it's might not necessarily be a net positive, but it's at least not, um, not time in my day spent doing something all that terrible for me. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, in the last, like, let's see. So 2012, so I'm like 2017, let's see. Yeah. 2015 to now in the last, so the last five years, I've read more books in the last five years than I've read in through all my academics simply because that's stuff that I just, you know, I never took for, I took for granted when I was growing up. I didn't like to read, didn't want to read. And now it fills the time more productively than, you know, 
growing up the video game con like style. I mean, I still enjoy trying to play a newer game to see the engines that are used, like Unreal, like the Unreal Engine or like the new Call of Duty or the Fortnite was popular, Warzone, all those things. They use certain engines that are, I have an interest in from a programming standpoint that maybe at some point if the time comes that I have an opportunity to learn and do things like that to take that on as you know since I went to school enjoyed that stuff find a niche between working on that stuff and personal training on the side instead or balance between the two just something um you know going to the future just to keep stuff balanced in between the stuff that I've learned growing up and enjoyed much like what you just kind of what we were talking about how you're kind of you know, you almost put aside some of the training side of things just because you're, you're pretty well, not necessarily set, but there's diminished marginal returns on each additional piece of knowledge that you acquire in exercise science. I was just having a similar conversation with uh, a strength and conditioning coach out of Baltimore. She specializes in soccer strength and conditioning named Erica Suter. But rather than it being about business, she was having the same, um, she was having the same realization about philosophy where, where more and more she's, focusing less and less on CSCS, continuing education classes, and focusing more on, you know, understanding stoicism and understanding Eastern philosophy, and these other aspects of just building better people that are so frequently neglected. No, it makes, it makes, makes total sense, because, like, for me, like, I still think for sure, because I am someone that needs to understand biology, you know, physiology, and any other word you want to throw in there, I enjoy learning that stuff, but for sure there's a diminishing return in a sense that I feel like I need to learn those things because it is my domain. I like, I want to be a hundred percent certain with any question that gets asked to me, but there's definitely a diminishing return point where I wish I spent a lot more time, uh, you know, maybe learning marketing skills, learning the sales skills, the business side of stuff. And then the philosophy, I mean, that's great too. I mean, there's plenty of stuff. I mean, when I went to a liberal arts school, you know, as a, as a conservative went to liberal arts school and I mean, I went in to these, these classes and, you know, those were some of the classes I thought I was going to absolutely hate simply because of the, the opinions of most of the, uh, the people that were in my grade and the class. And those are my favorite classes to debate and talk about things like that. It was really, you know, eye opening to me how little, um, you know, my views stand in the greater uh, being of things. Like it's just a ton of great stuff out there that I wish that I spent, you know, definitely need, I want to and need to spend more time you know, investing into. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, 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 it was same situation in college where I thought some of these classes that were going to be the dumbest actually ended up being where I learned the most just because they, they were where I had that much, that much of a, my, my knowledge gap was that great that just that 100 level class in college was able to just completely give me a 180 on my understanding of a, of a, of a topic. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. Cause even like I say, like, I say conservative relative to just like, because the, the terms these days for the political terms make no sense to me from like even 20 years ago. So like, not that I'm a big political guy. So I just, but anyways, um, one of my favorite teachers, his name's Glenn Willis. And I'm at this liberal arts school. A lot of my classmates, they have these, the liberal side of things, which again, it doesn't really bother me. I have no problem debating, talking. And I was like, I'm going to hate this class. Like seriously, the last thing I want to do for, you know, 90 minutes, three times a week is talk politics. And it ends up this one of my favorite classes. And I had a music class that was similar, the history of music, the history of, you know, culture and things like that. And these thought to be my least favorite classes I was going to have ended up the, the, the religion of things, the culture of things, the philosophy of things, all stuff I thought I was going to hate ended up being some of my favorite classes. So, you know, just with your computer science background and kind of how it relates to 
athlete development, strength and conditioning. Are there apps that you've been using? Are, are you using any kind of technology to, for data tracking with your athletes or are you relatively old school? Like, have you, have you found something in, in that, in the software area that you found to be of benefit to athlete development? So in the past, going through my own training and up until literally like not like six months ago, not really, like I don't use any like velocity tracking or like, um, like force tracking, anything like that. I never really did. I just went under the, the impression uh, uh, a well welcome standard is RPE and then make sure that you like you verbally and um, the, the client understands that each rep, if I want them to do something with high velocity to max effort, try to move that weight as fast as possible was kind of how we were working. But uh, my colleague Colin and um, a few of the uh, like the C4HPs that we work with for uh, grip and rock climbing, they have been doing a ton of stuff with, I think it's called X, X surge. And, uh, they just released, I, I can Google it real quick, but, um, X Surgio is the name and they use crane scales and they have a, uh, a, a vertical jump tool and a bunch of other of these, these tools that you want to talk about from a science standpoint that makes sports science integrate into the strength and conditioning. And I'm really getting into it because it's very, very interesting because for me as a power lifter, what I want to do is produce the most force in certain ranges of motion. And he uses crane scales, isometrics to track these things a lot better. So instead of me having to go to the gym, buy all this equipment and stuff, I can set up an isometric at the height of what a barbell inside of plates would be pull on the, you know, I get a straight bar, I chain it to the crane scale and pull up and it registers, you know, let's say at the barbell height, you know, 400, 400 pounds of force, I can set it right below the knee and maybe get 500 and then set it mid thigh, which a lot of rock climbers use in his training. And, you know, maybe get 600, 700. And this gives me, you know, another modality of an opportunity to maybe put accommodating resistance in, or, uh, you know, just there's plenty of opportunity. Now, if you have these tangible objective tools and, and evidence in front of you to decide to, you know, um, for the exergio, I mean, they use jump training, um, for like, t uh, turnover, like heel turnover, stuff like that. And, um, the crane scale is great for understanding like force production for the grip and uh, the pulls for the deadlifts and everything like that. And they've been trying to find ways they've been working with this company, bar sensei, I think uh, C4HB, the camp for human performance is working, working with a thing called bar sensei, which tracks the velocity of like straight movements. So like bar paths. So, I mean, there's a ton of stuff that I'm definitely getting interested in. And so where this is getting back to is that X Sergio just released um, a uh, software that gets integrated with the crane scale that is written in Python and Python is a popular language right now. And something that I was getting interested in because Colin was using the predated, uh, whatever the software is for the crane scale or the, uh, it's called the G force, I think. And it just, it's just a blanket numbers. So when you pull on this device, it shows you the force on the screen in real time. And I was like, dude, what if I just wrote a program that in, it took that data, found the mean and found the, you know, max and the min and the numbers that you wanted. And then sure enough, they just released the software that basically does that. And it's a nice user interface. So it's one of those things where there's definitely something there that the combination of the two definitely could give more objective data and create a better, uh, the better possibility of a programming for someone if we need to, you know, improve, improve absolute strength or velocity to make that better athlete. For sure. That's, that's awesome. That's see, I've, I've always just been so iffy about it because you know, uh, some of the things that these programs might be good at doing 
have such a learning curve to get acclimated to in the first place. I mean, so not only do you need to be good at, at working with athletes, then on top of that, you need to almost spend, you know, how much time are you willing to spend getting proficient at using some piece of equipment? I mean, I, I do a shit ton in Microsoft Excel and I'm getting pretty, pretty comfortable with that. But outside of that, I've been, I've been limited, but, but to know that there's something like that where you can get some, some actual good metrics and some good data tracking, that's fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Cause even like, so when I, I actually, this is the whole point of um, why Colin was, we use these uh, data tracking devices. So I have a history of like, I'll overdo it just as a person. <laughs> like if you tell me to do, you know, five sets of something, I'll probably do 10 just cause that's how I kind of am. And so when we started the grip training, the, the, you know, the soft tissue here, you don't want to hurt this tissue. It's very hard to come back from hurting the finger pulley system or the tendon, everything like that. So what, what's nice about the, uh, the G, the G strong or the G force is like, if I'm pulling here and I get an absolute number, it's going to tell me my 70 to 90% range. I don't have to guess. So if I'm doing hangs and I know that 70% is hundred pounds, I know that I need to put hundred pounds on me to work in that 70% range. I don't need to guess that maybe I need 115 and then I hurt my hand. So that's like one of the you know big things I like about it because I ended up hurting my hand real climbing at a, you know, sport climbing, I guess they call it at, um, in Philadelphia at a rock climbing gym because I did a two finger hold as a complete beginner and try to maximally pull myself. And I, you know, I strained my hand a little bit and I, you know, <laughs> you know, those are the things that, you know, if I can track myself, like I knew beforehand, I should, even though I was a new climber because of this tracking software, I knew I shouldn't have done that. But just because of you know how I am, I was like, dude, I'll be fine. I can do it. And you know, it was above my capacity and I hurt my finger. And then that makes sense. Anything, any load above the capacity of whatever joint finger muscle, is an injury. So, and, you know, it makes sense. And if you have objective data like that, it just definitely helps. And it's, you know, helped improve my, my grip strength. If when I follow the program, obviously, and, uh, it's just tough to beat considering, um, what I've, we've done so far. And, and I'm excited to get back with Colin once this all, all fi uh, figures out because they, uh, release more information, more stuff, and we want to get back at it and start tracking some of that, uh, information and see what we can come up with to help people get more objective data in their training. That's, that's something I, I actually wanted to talk to you about was, you know, I, just from following your Instagram and, and just kind of seeing what you're doing online. One of the things that's always kind of been in my periphery is the idea of grip training. Now, this is something I do probably at the very least on a weekly basis with my athletes is some, some variant. Usually it's something pretty rudimentary like, um, you know, um, either farmer's carries or back grips work, stuff like that. Um, but you know, I work with a lot of overhead athletes and I like the idea of the grip training just because of the, of what the grip can actually do for the rotator cuff. Um, so could you just kind of go, um, I'll just give you some free reign here to just talk about um, grip and some of your grip training exercises and just what you've kind of found about grip. Sure. So, I mean, so from, I'm not a rock climber by any means, but the background of my colleague, Colin, he is a rock climber. And his training is through, again, this guy, I'm going to say again, C4HP is the Instagram handle, Camp for Human Performance. And um, he's been putting out very easy ways to elicit um, maximal training and efficient training for grip. And so what I got interested in was, okay, I powerlift and I do jujitsu. A better grip is going to make me able to pull a gi or take grips for whatever submission I need to use and not burn out as quick. You know, if I have absolute, more absolute strength, I have more endurance. That's going to make me better at both respectively, even for free, basically just from doing this training. And so what we did was we did the test with our, the scale. And so I pulled down 
what's called a half crimp. So it's just this position. I pull down and I try to make this L. And so this is like a rock climb turn for half crimp. And a lot of the training, because I'm not, you know, a crazy climber is in the half crimp. And so my general understanding of grip was barbell work. I hold just like I hold any, you know, deadlift and I hold for 30, I don't know, 10 to 30 seconds. Well, that's what Instagram was telling me from the best guys in the world. Like I'd follow some guys uh, like Pete Rubbish or uh, a few other guys that they say grip training. What they use is this device called the Rolling Thunder, which is a grip tool. And they just do long deadlift folds. So I was like, okay, I'll do that stuff. And the issue was, I didn't know what weight to use. Like, I don't know what my max, like, I don't know if I go to 70% and I hold for five seconds or like, I don't know what my 70% is. I don't know how to figure this out because I don't have a number. I don't have a max. And so even when I figured out what I thought was my max and I went down, I was plateauing. I wasn't really getting as much grip progress as I was hoping. So this tool gives me a readout from the tip of my finger. So I always thought of grip from here, but realistically rock climbers who have the strongest grip, think of their basically their grip from up here, they pull down with force from the tip of their finger, whether it be the, the open, the half crimp, you know, that full crimp, like where they throw the thumb over, like they're pulling down for, from their fingers. So I was getting better progress from teaching myself to be strong here down than I was from here. I didn't get any of this for free in my training with the rock climbing stuff. I was getting better at maybe at deadlifting a little bit, doing the grip training from here. But now that I'm doing the half crimp training from up here, I'm getting the deadlift and the gi stuff for jujitsu for free. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where I, you just can't, you can't beat it. And wow. yeah, so as for, for me, the, the typical training that I've done, it doesn't take very long either. So we have a hang board and what we do is called density hangs. So oh, hold on, hold on. I'll pause, pause, time out, time out. What, um, so for hang boards, what, is there anything that you recommend? I was looking at getting one. I don't know what to get. Sure. Um, let me, so tension, tension climbing, I think is what Colin uses. So if I go to tension climbing, pretty sure that's it. Like I just bought a bunch of, a couple things from tension climbing. So they have like, uh, I think the grindstone MK2 on tension climbing is the like popular one. Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's, it is popular, but not the one we have. Is it the simple board maybe? Yeah. It's one of these, one of these holds. But anyways, yeah, tension climbing, I think, is the one that we have. And then it's freezing up on me. But what we use for our grip training is called the block. It's just like an individualized one piece that you can hook onto the scale or hook onto other things that's more portable. I just bought the, the flash board because it's like a two-hand version that's portable. And um, there's got to be the one I'm looking for. But anyways, yeah, sorry I can't find the... No, that's, that's good. That's, that's yeah. great. But anyways, yeah, it just, I mean, it has... So different millimeter holds. So typically you can start with the, the full grip pull. And that's what I was working on first before I could get to the 30 millimeter, which is pretty far in. So once you get pretty comfortable with just having enough capacity with your shoulders and biceps without any pain, you can get the 30 for, you know, a couple seconds to start. But anyway, so what we would do, it doesn't take me very long. It's like, it's uh, nine sets of these density hangs, five seconds, 30 seconds off. And then, three sets at the 30 mil with the half crimp, then um, three sets at the 25 seconds, depending on the weight I have to use. And then I pull on something that I can't do as hard as I can for three sets. And it takes me maybe 20, 25 minutes, do that three days a week. I mean, that's just in 90 minutes a week. And I put on, I don't have my numbers in front of me, but I put, I went on from unable to hang on the 20 to I can hang with like, like, you know, 30 pounds plus my body weight on the 20 millimeter hang 
within like three months. Like, I mean, I put on an, a ton of volume of poundages, like of strength in my fingers in the short period of time for relatively minimal work. I mean, it sucked. It was really hard because it's high intensity work, but I mean, for 90 minutes a week for three months and I put on, you know, an astronomical amount of, of grip strength. I mean, it's beginner gains obviously because I never did rock climbing finger training, but that's huge. I mean, I was going into jujitsu without getting bicep pain. I was going, you know, my, my deadlift, I didn't have to really think about grip with my hook grip or even just you know, to a double overhand grip. I wasn't thinking about my grip and that was all changing my thought process from training the tip and getting the down, like down from the tip for free relative to this. And I wasn't strong here at all. Yeah, that, just from a mechanical advantage perspective, that makes so much sense. It's, it, I, I'm surprised. I, I, it's so obvious once you pointed it out, but until I saw that, it, 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 I wasn't even thinking about that. For anyone listening, it was just the idea of the bar sitting in the hand versus the, the fingertips was where, where we need to kind of derive some more strength from. Yeah, just I was yeah. going to say, out of curiosity, how how long do you think you could hang up on, hang on a pull-up bar for just in a dead hang? So I actually, so as a joke, I was like, I wonder, I wonder out of nowhere. I did it like maybe like a week or two ago. I went over two minutes and I, I never could do that. I remember the one time we did a, 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 a team challenge in school and I failed at like one, maybe 105. And our whole team, the best on the team was like 125 or something like that. And I just randomly did it the other time. And realistically, the only reason I let go is my, my, I was like losing like feeling in my arms. Like the grip really wasn't the issue. I wasn't really squeezing that hard. Once you build that absolute ceiling, you get a lot of that endurance stuff for free. So, I mean, I'm getting to the point where once I get back with Colin, I need to get with him because I need to start, you know, I'm starting to plateau in the absolute strength side. So I need to start, you know, pushing that force velocity curve over and do some velocity work. And I don't know if you follow him, but he was posting a ton of his new velocity work. And he does what's called repeater work, which is above my pay grade at this point. And he is uh, conditioning of his fingers. His ability to produce force over longer periods of time is like double since quarantine started. So, I mean, that's the stuff I need to get into now. And that's the stuff I'm interested to get with him back and get more of a, you know, a philosophy, like the training dialogue going of how to interpret that and how to program that for myself too. Cause that's, I mean, that's huge. And when you're, you know, climbing, you know, climbing 30, 70, hundred feet, you know, thousands of feet, if you're Alex Hummel, like that's big being able to produce that, you know, above max effort pace for hours at a time is huge. And he's, he's, you know, improved his grip almost doubling since quarantine started. So that's, what's great about it. It's transportable. It doesn't take that much time and it huge results. So it's awesome. Dan John is a strength and conditioning coach. He works with a lot of high school athletes. He has a test set, which is basically you do a pull up, you hang on a pull up bar and you just do one pull up every 30 seconds and see how long you could go for. And yeah, people, it's not something that people could do for any length of time whatsoever. No, it's, yeah, it's tough. Cause even like, um, the, one of the guy, I forget his name. He's a YouTube guy, old, uh, his name's like Magnus or something old, uh, old rock climber, like semi, I guess he's retired and then just YouTube now. And he did a, he did a dead hang for like seven minutes or something like that, which is just like, you know, that's like one of those mind boggling things where you're just like, nah, I can't be done. And he just mm. did seven minutes. <laughs> I'll I'll have just for a little bit of, of, of spinal decompression. That's usually something that we throw in the cool down for a lot of athletes, and it'll either just be an actual hang depending on their competency, or it'll be like a box assisted or something like that, where it's more of like a posture restoration type thing, where they're just kind of overhead. 
Um, and then we'll usually do for up to 60 seconds to 90 seconds, but it'll just be, it's a totality of 60 seconds to 90 seconds. It's not, um, it's not as though that we're, we're giving them some max effort set to do at the end. If they do it in bouts of 20 seconds or 30 seconds or whatever the case might be, that's, that seems to be where, where we're getting some of that in. Nice. Yeah, as I say, I just, other than just doing it every once in a while to, you know, it cracks my back, makes me feel good. I, don't, I haven't really mixed too much of that in, but, you know, makes people, if it makes you feel better, makes you, you know, gets the job done. That's totally fine. Totally fine with my books. <laughs> I, I think it's good just for, just for the perspective of just stretching out the lats a, a little bit better than a lot of things might otherwise do. I just think they're just so chronically tight and so many people. And I mean, if we're, you know, we're sitting seven or eight or nine hours a day, it's probably better to do something, just, just a law of averages thing, just to kind of get you overhead and get those lats and those pets strike a little bit. For sure. Yeah. Now there's, you know, we're already an hour into this and there's, there's so much shit I want to cover here. One of the biggest things that I wanted to talk to you about, and this is something that you introduced me to, and I've since heard a few times, um, the science behind which I think is pretty interesting is the idea of, of nasal breathing. Can you talk, can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So I got into this concept. For, so it's from the book, Oxygen Advantage, Patrick McGoon. And um, so growing up, I, I am built to sprint 60 yards and that is it. I mean, I never did conditioning. I never did long distance, like low intensity, steady state cardio. My whole entire being is meant to do one rep from powerlifting and, you know, literally sprint as fast as I can because I built fast twitch my whole life to sprint 60 yards and then take a break for a really long time. And so that's good if that's what I needed to do. But for baseball and now training for the military stuff, um, the PFT, obviously there's a three mile introduction. Like I have to hit a certain number max scores, 18 minutes, which is pretty fast for someone that doesn't do a distance. So I got into nasal breathing and the science behind respiratory physiology a little bit deeper because I would, I could run a mile. I could run two miles. I could run three miles every single day and feel exactly the same amount of pain for months to week, like, you know, weeks to months at a time. I never felt like I was getting better. I just didn't understand. I was, I would feel lightheaded. My body would take four days to recover from a run. So when I was stacking runs upon each other by day, you know, four in a row or something like that, I would be so beat up. I couldn't do like, I would have to take off. I couldn't even lift or do anything else. So I was like, there's just, there's just, I'm doing something wrong. Like just from an entire being standpoint, something is off. And so what I found was I just background, I was chronic allergies. I would always get sinus infections. I never could breathe through both my nostrils. I uh, mouth breathed in my sleep. For I woke up um, always with a dry mouth, so I always slept with my mouth open. I had braces growing up, so my jaws a little bit narrower than I probably genetically was predisposed to have. I had a really bad overbite, and it's kind of crooked. Like my jaw, I don't know if like this will make sense with the the camera, but like my jaw when it was really far back and it was tilted this way, but now it's just a little bit more forward in the right position, but it's still kind of crooked. So this jaw is actually narrower on, it's wider on this side than it is on this side. And I don't know if that's because of the orthotics or I, or the orthodontics and the, if, um, because I was mouth breathing as an adolescent into growing through, um, into adult and, um, all that stuff. There's so many factors that could be at play here, but, um, I got into nasal breathing simply because the book talks about how that is just our evolutionary need is to breathe through the nose. That's the parasympathetic um, side of your system is nasal breathing. Um, it also talks about how if you're familiar with Pfizer, Viagra, they took advantage of this concept 
um, of nitric oxide. And then if you take pre-workout, general pre-workout, they'll have vasodilators in them to get the blood flowing a little bit better and things like that. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea that nitric oxide pools in your nasal cavity. It does in your mouth, but your nose has a lot more pooling in it than it does in your mouth. So there's an idea that if you nasal breathe, you are dilating with the nitric oxide, the blood vessels and everything downstream a lot better than you are through your mouth. So for me, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let me learn more about that. So I found the oxygen advantage. I found things like that. And so I read the book, everything like that. And I bought this book. It's uh, Respiratory Physiology by John West. It's a little book, but it's very dense in information. It takes a long time to read if you're really following through. And um, what I found was doing the exercises, because I didn't really understand the principles. He lays out, he lays out exercises to do, focusing on nasal breathing, obviously. Having no idea what I was doing, I was breathing through both my nostrils. I was off my Allegra. I was mouth taping at night, so I have the tape here. It's just like 3M, like micropore tape, just enough to like, it would literally just fit across your lips. So I was taping my mouth, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't mouth breathe at night. Almost, almost immediately, my performance, my sleep, things like that, my performance in sport was feeling better. So I was like, okay, I'm starting to buy in on this. Let me do a little bit more research, understand the nasal breathing, the, the concept of, of the... Um, the, the purpose of oxygen relative to carbon dioxide in the system. So when you get brought up, you're like, oxygen is God and carbon dioxide is the devil. We need to disperse CO2 at all times. So I think one of the issues I was having was I all day long would intentionally try to take in more oxygen and exhale oxygen every single day. So if you know anything actually about the system, that's like the worst thing that you possibly can do from a standpoint of health, cardiovascular health. Because what I was doing was restricting my blood vessels. I was actually being high tone and stressed, and my blood pressure was a lot higher doing that. So when you think, I need to take this deep inhale, I need to constantly get this inhale, if you overdo that for you know weeks to months to years at a time like I was, you actually get more constricted. So imagine me being constricted and then doing high-intensity interval training, you know, doing sprints and all these things. I was just murdering my body constantly. So I just I had to, I had to I'd do this long process now where I focused, I'm trying to bring the, um, my CO2 tolerance up. I'm tr so the higher I can build my tolerance, the, the ability for my, my uh, system to dilate as I take in this nitric oxide through my nose is going to be a lot better. I'm going to be able to, to put the nutrients through. I'm going to be able to do all these things, get blood to where I need it to be a lot more efficient. And so what happens in my training now that I'm getting into heart rate training too, now this is turning to a little bit of rant. So, but sorry, I apologize for that, but no, no, you're good. This is great. Yeah. It's coming full circle now. So I just started getting into heart rate training because I knew I was lacking in the distance and some of the best runners in the world do a lot of their training 80 to 90% in this zone too. So I was like, okay, I'll start doing the zone two training. Cause that seems to be what the research says, what the best is, you know, the top 10% of people are doing. And so what I was finding was, okay, I can do this stuff really well on a bike. I can do it really well on elliptical. I can go for hours upon hours in zone two, but to run specifically transfer my run was not happening. So when I run, this is my, what's happening right now, why I'm having such a hard time doing distance running. If I go any faster than a fast walk to the, I mean, I'm talking the slowest jog that you can think of almost comically slow. My heart rate jumps to 180 immediately. And that is obviously a sign of how bad I've trained my system, my cardiorespiratory system, all of these, all of these years through adolescence. I completely adapted to be able to max effort sprint 
as fast as humanly possible one time and infinitely take a break. And that's just what I was built for. And now I'm finding out that through the understanding of nasal breathing, how just inefficient my entire system is. So now I'm, you know, I'm taking, I have to take a step back here and rewire myself to, to train more efficiently. Cause the goal, the goal is, is in, in, for my, in my opinion, for when I get to the, the training at a officer candidate school in Quantico is they're just going to beat me up. Their goal is just going to try to break me. So if I'm constantly at 180, you know, 180 max now 200, I'm just going to fry myself. My body's going to get fried up. But if I can all they need to do is just have you at a at a brisk walk for for four <laughs> weeks. No, it's it's like it, it's like literally if I don't get if I'm not able to get my system more efficient, I have to I have to redline every single event, even the stuff that is if I'm like you know fast walking, slow jogging, that should be recovery. That shouldn't be redlining 180. So if I'm constantly beating my, I'm redlining this whole time. I'm gonna have a much difficult time if I can build my base up higher into the range of the getting beat up. If I can build my base to where getting beat up is normal and then my ceiling is that much higher, that's going to make the difference. And that's kind of where my training's been at now. Longer bouts of uh, slow endurance training to try to reinvent that system to constantly try to build my tolerance to CO2 with the nasal breathing. And the book talks about breath holds too. And that's another whole entire topic, but like between breath holds, and trying to breathe lighter to build my, my tolerance to CO2. It's completely changed my entire like being. I don't have allergies. I don't take allergy medication anymore. I can sleep through the night. I don't even need the tape anymore. My mouth stays shut. My sleep is a lot better. I can breathe through both my nostrils. No problem. Never have to think about it. And that, that was all foreign to me. So it's just crazy. It's just crazy the amount of it's how it's not even, not even taught or thought about and all the implications it could have. Like you'll see now, in Western society, especially a baby, if they're being breastfed, or if you see a baby or know a baby, they might have their mouth open all day long and all day through sleep. And then they'll chronically grow up. And you're seeing the, the research suggests a narrowing of the face of a lot of, of humans, which is an inefficient route to get that airflow to the back of the throat and down. And it's just crazy that there's just so many implications to how orthodontics are being treated and everything like that. There's just so much that comes out of not breathing through your nose your entire life. That what, What's the mechanism that that's happening at such a young age? I mean, if there's this evolutionary advantage to nasal breathing, shouldn't that just be inbuilt into the infant? So this is where I definitely would need to do more research about. But so some of the stuff that I've seen, in my opinion, is that it a baby comes out so early because of you know, the idea that the head is going to be too big at a certain time when it should come out, that the one of the concepts that we see in Eastern or indigenous, what the research that I've read and seen through the book and the other stuff is that the mothers actually practice pushing the baby's chin up as a relative motherly act. And um, another thing is that um, I don't know if it's affecting more now in Western or just from the research that was read was a lot of times there's it, the, the conditions of a baby sleeping most of uh, um, in some instances where it's just too hot and caught or the way they're angled or the way the positioning that the mouth opens as a necessity to the heat. Like maybe there's too much congestion already with the child that the body actually has to open the mouth because of being congested from being too dry and hot or things like that. But I know that a lot of the research in, that I've seen or read from people that have spent time with indigenous people, they show that the mothers after breastfeeding intentionally put the baby's jaw up if it is open to make sure that 
they understand because even they imply that babies that have teething problems through the night or mouth breathing babies in their sleep that put that dry mouth from mouth breathing all night causing that pain with the teeth that are coming in there's just a whole bunch of stuff that not that there's enough evidence to suggest that any of this is you know it's definitely just a possibility at this point that there's a ton of implications from not nasal breathing because i had that same question it doesn't make a lot of sense that there's two things that don't make a lot of sense from evolution standpoint is that the choking risk as well it doesn't make a lot of sense if i need a nasal breathe but i eat through my mouth so if i'm eating and breathing through my nose and i have a possibility of choking that's a real thing it doesn't make a lot of sense that the only thing that stops you from doing that is this tiny and very important mechanism that you'd never really think about going back and forth to make sure you don't choke like that's a pretty big that's a pretty big like weird thing to think about that you're you're this close to dying from choking all the time and you never really think about it you know what i mean because it's just the epiglottis <laughs> So that's another, that's one that I always think is crazy after that. It was brought to my attention that you literally are relying on this tiny little flapping thing back and forth all the time that, you know, you never really think about, which is just a crazy thought. <laughs> so I'm at the risk of sounding like an idiot. Um, what, is there any safety implications with this, with the, like the mouth taping? So, yeah, I guess like for me, for me, like I, I don't really, I didn't really care. Like I put it on day one and went right to bed and it didn't bother me. But I know for sure, like, this is how it gets taught as I took the instructor course. Because in our society right now, there's just high anxiety, high stress. You know, people are high tone. And a lot of times people can't breathe through their nose. So obviously taping your mouth is a death sentence. But, like, for, for what gets taught, it's just a comfortability thing. Like, if you're going to tape your mouth um, and are interested in doing that, just put it on, like, two hours before bed and get comfortable with it. And then if you hate it, okay, don't use the tape. There's other options. There's, um, you know, you can get the, there's like a snore strap, they call, where it almost looks like headgear that pulls the chin up and you can tie it, which looks a little ridiculous, but gets the job done. And Patrick McCune actually released what's called myotape. It was on Shark Tank, actually. So for me, I put the tape over my lips and it kind of hurts every time I take it off. It's just unavoidable. He made tape that it actually is like a rubber band and it'll pull in this way. So you put it around your lips and then it pulls the skin together. So, I mean, technically, if you just open your mouth with effort, the tape's not going to stop you. So I could see why using this kind of tape across the lips is a little more sketchy for some people. I kind of just jumped on it, but the, the myo tape that's available, literally goes around like a square and it's elastic that pulls in. So if you need to open your mouth, you can just open your mouth if you have to. But that's but there's, the no, there's no cases of people just like doing this and then just, that's it. They don't wake <laughs> up. Not that I know because um, I know um, a lot of times, I mean, the theory, the concept that if you're sleeping, you have a bad dream, like a near death experience to wake yourself up from choking or near like uh, mm -hmm. asphyxiation. So I, I don't, your body has mechanisms, I guess, in sleep that probably would prevent you from doing that, I hope anyways. But I know that there's, you know, some theories out there with dreaming and stuff. If you're asphyxiating in sleep or if, you know, your body naturally is going to wake up. And if you have tape over your mouth and you start to not breathe, I'm sure, you, you know, hopefully evolution has gone far enough to. You're going to wake up and get that off. <laughs> well, well, we'll find out tonight. Because yeah. <laughs> even like, um, I know like uh, Colin has a deviated septum, I believe. I'm pretty sure. And he mouth tapes. He was very vehemently against mouth taping. And he finally bought on because I got him to read the book. And I think he's been mouth taping strong and has pushed through and is able to breathe a lot better. He's taken it as far as into his runs that he's been uh, working through the nasal breathe through his runs. And he's saying he's having a, um, a lot more enjoyable experience. And he feels a lot, uh, lot better in his runs already. So I'd be curious, again, another talking point I want to talk to him once we get back and able to talk out some new stuff, new training. I'm going to put uh, Colin, some links for him in the show notes as well, just because of, just because of uh, 
a few times he's come up here. And just from what I've seen on his socials as well, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, he's uh, so I work at a place called Lions Fitness Center, and he's the director there. He's the guy that reached out to me, also from Schuylkill County, went to Schuylkill Haven. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it's just small, you know, Schuylkill County trying to take over here, trying to help out the best we can. And he reached out, and I got lucky enough to work with him. So got to keep it rolling. Lucky enough to also connecting back with you. So again, have this podcast as well and all the future stuff I'm sure we'll be having. Okay. I, so this might be a rabbit hole here, but I would be remiss not to um, broach this topic. The idea of tactical strength and conditioning. I mean, so we've kind of alluded to it a few times here, but ultimately in the next, within the next few months, you're going off, you're shipping off to um, Jarhead school, correct? Yep. So we'll all be going to officer candidate school Quantico for the Marine Corps. And, uh, and it looks like, so it looks like, so the summer class actually got canceled for the, I think it's like the first time ever because of the pandemic. So I got pushed back to the fall, which is like the first or second week in September. So I'm here until September. So I got a couple more months to train. And what are you doing from a physical perspective to, to kind of make sure that you're, you're, you're in ship shape for, for that? I sure, mean, because sure. it's offer candidate officer candidate school is it are, are you a little less worried about the actual physical requirements so unfortunately uh, it's not that i'm worried because i'm not going to be anxious i'm going to try to keep myself not anxious going into the event because i don't really know what's going to happen um I, i'm very competitive so i mean if i have a bunch of other guys there i don't know how i'm going to react to all that but um from a from a standpoint of my training from a strength standpoint i think i'm going to be like in the top tier of people from a strength standpoint, because I've devoted most of my time to that. And from the pool functions I do, which is just the get togethers of the other officers, I'm above and beyond like the standard of which like the average is. And I'm not to not because I'm about to just diss myself here in a second. So like for the strength standpoint, I am not worried whatsoever from that standpoint. But the issue I have with my training now, like we talked about with the conditioning is that they heavily bias the, the endurance side. So the issue that I am fearing is that to be successful at OCS, it seems a lot of people that are successful are actually like, you know, you're, uh, what you would imagine a cross country runner to look like. So a very skinny, a longer leg, tall person, which I am the opposite of. <laughs> that really comes in handy when, in, uh, when they're doing all those marathons over in Iraq that they're running all the time. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where like, for me, so this is what's interesting is, so my training, I'm very strength oriented. Um, the, I received a um, training regime that's like a 12-week program. So 12 weeks out, you're supposed to do this program. It's supposed to prepare you. And so the, the rucking, which is just carrying a rucksack of weight in a backpack and walking is at a certain pace for so long. Though it's week 12 is like 50 pounds or 30 or 50 pounds for five miles. So I've done 50 pounds for nine miles just already before the 12 weeks out. And my heart rate didn't go over like 140. Like that is my niche. Like if you give me a couple, like, you know, 50 to hundred pounds and you need me to walk for forever, I'm going to absolutely crush that. And I know a lot of people in my pool function have trouble with that. We did a 25 pound ruck for four miles and people were having trouble keeping up with the pace and keeping up with the, you know, the physicality of it. But my issue is I am, I am doing terrible in my, I don't want to say I'm doing terrible, but like my performance for distance running as is expected of me from this training is not that well. I'm probably in the low tier of that. I'm going to have a hard time with that. So that's why I've been doing most of my focus in the conditioning side of things. So from, from like, I would say two thirds of the things. So the physicality, the ruck, like there's hiking, there's physical obstacles and things like that. There is an academic side, but I'm not too worried about that, that side of things. 
from just from the information that's provided from the captain that I talked to and um, everything else that's kind of almost a, no, a non-factor right now from so the, the two-thirds of things the physical side the obstacles the physical strength and the rucking the hiking that's the two of the three things that are asked of us I'm not too worried about but I am for sure because there's it's heavily biased this other third of things I should almost say half I should say like this half of things I'm definitely it's more giving me more uh, like anxiety in my training because it's not going as fast as my strength training like I know that I do these 12 weeks I get better at lifting strength like for strength I've been running for over it's actually coming up on a year that I've been in the pro in the like selection process because of how things have been pushed back and it's only I've only you know up my time maybe six minutes my three mile time in six minutes and I've been you know I've been pushing my out my like zone two training I've been running like for the first time in my life I've, I ran six miles and then I ran eight miles at one time like this stuff is just a whole new terrain of things and it's still not where I want it to be for sure just because I want to be double prepared. Like I want to be, you know, whatever they throw at me, I don't want to be too worried about just to get it through. And uh, since I'll be in leadership positions and things like that, I don't want to be my physicality an issue. I just want to be able to do what the task was asked of me. So I'm definitely a little concerned of the, uh, the, uh, the conditioning side. So this two, two, three months is a kind of a blessing because now I can really dive in. And even these last, like for the last 10 days, I've at least done 30 minutes of zone two. And then once a week, we've been doing a two, three hour hike, you know, with tons of elevation. So, I mean, I've been doing a ton more stuff. And even at this point with how I don't feel I'm prepared, I'm going to be, you know, doubling down. I might even be minimal one hour, one hour a day. And if I don't see that, I'm going to bump it to 90. I'm going to bump it to whatever it has to be that I can get that progress I'm looking for. In, uh, in episode 10 of the podcast, Paige Stoner was on and she, one of the things she was talking about is the the uh, the disadvantage to runners that don't use the carbon plated footwear so maybe she could slip you a, a few pairs of these <laughs> these carbon plated shoes to uh kind of help up your time a little bit no i'd be uh, yeah i definitely have to ask her because even like um um so i'm i've been running a lot in blue marsh if you're familiar and mm -hmm. for those that don't know it's just it's 30 there's 30 miles of opportunity to run through but it's very hilly it's off it's a trail running and so the issue i've been having is like there's a combination of I've actually kind of hurt my feet and my ankles and stuff from the terrain being goofy and not asphalt. And uh, so my body's having just an in general, a hard time adapting to long distance running. It's just taking a lot longer than I was expecting just from a physicality standpoint, because I don't really have trouble lifting or getting myself to do things. Like if I were to run, like a lot of the times we'll do six mile runs over at Blue Marsh, it might take me three or four days to recover from that run, which is just too long. Like if I'm going to be running three to five miles every day at OCS, I can't be, I can't afford to have, you know, three days recovery to feel like I'm back to, you know, that 80 above percent range that I can continue training or running again. So that's what, been, kind, what kind of footwear are you using? So, um, the, I, so from what I've heard, and I don't know if this is going to be true when I get there, there's like a store that I pay for shoes when I get there, or I can bring my own shoes. So there's mixed signals. And so with the, from what I can tell and the updated stuff I got sent, I believe I actually can bring two pairs of shoes. So from my, I think my, like my dad was in Paris Island. I think he just got there and got shoes. Like he went to the store, had to pay for Brooks. And then now is like the, you know, the on Paris Island store and got the Brooks. And that's what I was expecting. I don't think I have to do that anymore. But so I brought Brooks because I thought that's what I was going to have to wear. Mm. But for trail running, I, um, for the rucks, I wear the, I wear like federal, they're like federal prison, like federal prison boots and, um, or barefoot shoes to try to get the feeling of my feet working a little bit more. 
And then I just have your average, average shoe. I could afford definitely to get a better trail running shoe for the stuff I'm in. But other than that, I wear Brooks on asphalt and uh, the treadmill and everything else just to, cause I thought that's what I was gonna have to use. Awesome. Well, all right, dude, we just did a long time here. Yeah. So we should probably wrap that up, but I, I appreciate you and I'm, I'm glad we were able to take this opportunity and I look forward to talking to you more, maybe on the other side of, um, of basic or near officer Canada school. And we could, we could keep the conversation rolling. Sounds good. Yeah, definitely. Colin and I Alliance fitness center, if we can stay linked up, stay networked and uh, figure out what we can do for our local, uh, you know, Schuylkill County, Berks County community, get the kids updated, get the best information to the people that want it. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> where, where can people find out more about you or, or the facility that you work at here? Sure. So on, uh, for me, I need to definitely pick my uh, social media presence up for sure. But Nick two hair, N I C K the number two hair H A I R on all platforms. Uh, luckily I've been able to uh, monopolize that, that uh, username everywhere, but uh, Alliance fitness center. Um, that's where, that's the gym I work at. And uh, that'll have, they have a website information that uh, what the gym does, but um, most of uh, the work we've been doing, Colin and I, we're just trying to, you know, just like you, we're just trying to get the best information to the kids that we can. Anybody that wants to listen, put the time in, we'll be willing to put the hard work in the programming side. If you, you know, want to put the hard work in on the other side. All right. Groovy, Nick. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap on today's episode. You can find more about the Human Advancement Podcast and Ruthless Performance on ruthlessperformance.com. I specifically recommend that you head to our online education tab where you can learn more about self-improvement, the physiology of performance, practices for enhanced wellness, and more. You can view all podcast episodes directly on our website at podcast.ruthlessperformance.com. I also recommend that you follow us on both Instagram and Twitter with the handle at ruthlessperform. If you have any questions for our monthly Q&A or wanted to learn more about training with Ruthless Performance, including information on our athlete development training, injury prevention and corrective exercise protocols, personal training, or for consults or assessments, you can get in touch with us online at ruthlessperformance.com contact or via email at info at ruthlessperformance.com. The human advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace-Savage.